Class is in session. You're listening to Squat University by Dr. Aaron Horshake. Let's go! Now, let's start the show. Hey, what's up, everybody? Thank you so much for stopping by today's show. This is episode 55 of the Squat University podcast. The goal with each and every one of these shows is to bring you as much value-packed content to help you move better in the gym and in life, decrease your body's aches and pains, and help you reach your true athletic potential. Today's interview podcast is with the foremost expert in spine biomechanics in the world, Dr. Stuart McGill. Now, this is Dr. McGill's third time on the podcast, and if you have not yet uh, scrolled back and listened to those, you need to go back through my feed and listen to those episodes because they are jammed, packed, full of amazing content on everything back-related. We've talked about the mechanism for how injuries occur at the back, specific to the strength sports of powerlifting weightlifting, and CrossFit and how they differ between the three, and a number of other topics related to rehab from back pain and how to train your core for maximal performance. Now, those are episodes 33 and 48, so go back and listen to those for sure. Today's podcast, we dive deeper into the science of one of our previous topics, the idea of gluteal amnesia. Now, for all my exercise science nerds out there that actually like to look into more of the research, the research article that Dr. Stuart McGill will reference in this podcast is titled Arthrogenic Neuromuscular Inhibition, a Foundational Investigation of Existence in the Hip Joint from the Journal of Clinical Biomechanics, if you guys want to go back and look that up. We also touch on a few other topics, such as whether or not you should stretch tight hamstrings and whether or not it's a cause of low back pain, and how you should consume research for the coaches and professionals out there that actually nerd out like I do in read research. So without further ado, let's get to today's podcast. Stu, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to jump on the Squire University podcast. This is our third time talking, and it's truly an honor every single time. Um, I know we wanted to dive deep into a topic that we covered briefly on our last podcast, which is the topic of gluteal amnesia. There's a lot of people out there that have different ideas on it, but we want to get down to the research, what it says, and uh, clinical experience, what that tells us also. So let's start off with this question. What is gluteal amnesia? Uh, <laughs> well, I believe I originated that term, and, and here's how it came about. Uh, you, you, you have, I'm sure, have heard of the very famous Czechoslovakian neurologist, Vladimir Yonda. Yes. And uh, he was an incredible uh, clinician, kind of like Einstein, in that uh, before there was even technology to test his theories, he had proposed these theories, just like Einstein proposed relativity, and the science wasn't there to either really prove it or disprove it, and, and, and that came a little bit later. And uh, science showed that most of what Einstein said was true, but not all. Well, it turned out to be the same with Yonda, and we assessed some of his claims. So what one of his proposals was crossed pelvis syndrome. Mm -hmm. That is a neurological response to back pain and hip pain. That being, and he said, the glutes become weak and the hip flexors become tight. Now, that was his wording. Mm -hmm. but what I think really, uh, when you measured it, it was the engram for doing something hip extensor centric, like a squat. Uh, the engram sends out volleys of signals shared to the different muscles. His idea was not that the glutes became weak, but the 
neural drive to the glutes became diminished. And that's exactly what we measured. Um, but he also said uh, the, the flexors become tight. But I think that's called neurogenic facilitation uh, of the uh, psoas. And I, I've had a very personal experience with that with my own hips that uh, mm -hmm. I can tell you about later if you, if you remind me of it. But getting back to the gluteal uh, muscles, um, we found that in some people, they showed gluteal amnesia without psoas uh, uh, facilitation. So they didn't have full-blown crossed pelvis syndrome. Mm. They only had real, what we'll call a gluteal amnesia. Well, that, the, the technical term for it is uh, neurogenic uh, inhibition. And just as some people limp when they have pain and they're trying to avoid it, uh, the brain seems to shut down certain muscles or at least diminish the neural drive to them with pain. And the theory was that pattern stays corrupted even when they get out of pain so that some corrective exercise might be required to address the uh, corrupted uh, engram. Well, is any of this true? Well, certainly studies of uh, knee pain and VMO uh, inhibition uh, have been done, but we, I, up until that time, I hadn't seen anything done with back pain or, or hip pain, so we thought we'd be the first to do that. So we worked with an interventional radiologist and we measured the neural drive or the muscle activation in the glutes, the hamstrings, the quadriceps, the abdominal wall, erector spinae, when people did certain things like a squat, um, a uh, hip thrust, for example, um, et cetera. Then all of these people were candidates for, um, what do they call that now? Uh, therapeutic arthrograms. So these are people like firefighters and police officers who are still fairly active, but they have fairly advanced hip arthritis. They are going to be candidates for hip replacement in another five years or so. But the idea of the hip arthrogram is to uh, inject it with a saline fluid under high pressure, and it actually bursts the capsule, expands it just a little bit to give a bit more room. And that's been shown to give certain types of uh, hip pathology a few more years of reprieve before eventual surgery. The rub is it induces pain like hell. <laughs> so there we thought there is a good model to test this. Mm -hmm. So we would have them do their uh, various... Uh, exercises, as I just described, and we're measuring how the brain is distributing neural drive to the various muscles, and then they get hip pain during the procedure. And it's so interesting that the gluteals are targeted by the brain to diminish. Mm -hmm. So Yonda's proposal was proven. And then uh, the, the hamstrings weren't affected. They were, they were full on for hip thrusts and whatnot. Uh, but the gluteals were out of the picture. But then when um, the uh, radiologist took away the pain and the pressure, the uh, hamstring, uh, the gluteals, sorry, regained their role once again. Um, so certainly it showed that neurogenic uh, inhibition was uh, a response to uh, pain. But not all people uh, have neurogenic inhibition, just as 
back pain is such a non-homogeneous condition. So if you look at anything related to back pain, you'll only ever get a muddy average because one person might have discogenic back pain. The next person might have pain from uh, an end plate fracture. The next person might be a catastrophizer. You know, all, all of these things cause uh, pain. So you can't really link something to back pain. But once you subcategorize it, uh, absolutely patterns uh, and the ability for a clinician to do pattern recognition comes about. So there's a little bit of a start. And if there's people who say uh, on the internet, well, gluteal amnesia doesn't exist, I'll, I'll, I'll address that at the end, if you like, on how to consume science. But I there's a start great. On, on what gluteal amnesia is. And that's where that, uh, I, I coined that term because it isn't always full-blown cross-pelvis syndrome. Yeah, and that's a great definition. Just like you would say, there's no such thing as non-specific low back pain. We have to have specific tests and measures and screening processes in place to find out the exact triggers for back pain. So for someone, we can't just assume that they have gluteal amnesia. We need to be doing some different testing. And I think one thing that a lot of people get wrong is they think inhibited means completely turned off. And that's not what we're saying. We're just saying that it's not, it doesn't have as much neurological drive as before. Yeah, it's a continuum, absolutely. That, that's wise. Yeah. Gotcha. Now, for those of us who don't have uh, a specialist that's able to uh, assess on them, what are some ways in which everyday people or clinically we can assess whether or not someone is dealing with gluteal amnesia? Well, that, that's a tough one. I've been asked that before, and it comes from a combination of doing the science with EMG. So after a while, your eye and your hands can palpate and feel in an educated way, but it's the EMG experience that educates you. So I've been doing that for 30 years, <laughs> and, and I can kind of see it. But here might be an example of someone getting out of a chair I can do this now without using my glutes. I can lean forward and I can shoot my hips up mm -hmm. just like that with my hamstrings. And then I have a round back and I can use my round back and my hamstrings to extend my hips and get an upright posture. Now I can do that and I can measure it with, with no EMG. But if someone was to sniff a little air, lean forward through the hips and then pull the hips through, that pattern requires some gluteal uh, activation. So a good coach mm -hmm. who can differentiate these different types of squat forms um, will be able to do it. And, and I know we've discussed this in the past, like with uh, Chris Duffin's transformer bar, for example, we can load the weight, bias it forward, have them vertical, and they can do quite a nice uh, squat that is knee-centric. Mm -hmm. But if they get best sit back into the hole and then say they are going to do a box squat or that kind of emotion, you are going to have to have uh, a lot of contribution from the hamstrings and a lot of contribution from the glutes. So this is your eye will, will start to see this, but how does a person start to measure it? Well, if we did a, a back bridge, for example, you can palpate the hamstrings. And if a person doesn't have gluteal amnesia, you, you, you should be able to do it, and I can describe the techniques if you want, 
um, you can do a back bridge without any hamstrings at all. Well, what's left? It had to be the glutes. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the coaching cues that you will give to the person are squeeze your glutes or pretend you're holding the ace of spades in your butt cheeks. Don't let it go. <laughs> you cannot hold a dollar bill there or a, an ace of spades without gluteal activation. Mm -hmm. and, and we'll play. Uh, and this is Yonda 101, these coaching cues of don't uh, let, raise your, your feet off, the toes off the floor, have your feet flat on the floor in, in a back bridge, if I can just get on the patient table, yeah. uh, if I can turn it. And, so, and now I'm trying to do, um, I buttress the toe with my feet on the floor, and I try and do knee extension and push the knee away, and then do the back bridge. And if you can do that with zero hamstring, it's full-on gluteal activation. And uh, as it turned out, that turned out to be a very, very wise way and a superior way to re-educate the glutes uh, because we compared to them to different uh, methods. You know, we would have people, one group of clinicians brought us uh, some gluteal inhibited former back pain patients and they would take a med ball and go around the clock, six o'clock, five o'clock, three o'clock through the hips and if they were hamstring dominant they stayed hamstring dominant and it wasn't until they changed the engram over with the coaching cues of yonda so it turned out to be once again i, I said yonda was in the club of einstein yeah. in that he proposed these ideas and they turned out to be true when we tested them uh, uh in the clinic and then there are other tricks think of a lateral leg raise for example mm -hmm. you can do a lateral leg raise and if you, if I can just if you see what I mean here, if I roll back, I'm forcing the glutes to do the activation. If I roll back this way, it's TFL mm. that is doing the, uh, uh, the work. So there, that's a little bit of functional anatomy and, and how coaching cues. And, and we've measured all of that. That was published by, uh, it would have been uh, Ed Cambridge and Natalie Sidorkowitz, my uh, grad students at the time who, who mm -hmm. published that. Knee angle, by the way, matters in doing the clamshell exercise. Yes, I've seen that. A straight, yeah, that was another one of uh, their studies. Mm -hmm. you have a straight leg on the ground and then a bent knee. Uh, you can take the knee right over on top of the support leg mm -hmm. and uh, uh, do the... Uh, uh, clamshell that way to diminish TFL and uh, put more education if you want. So is the exercise a strengthening exercise or is it rewriting a corrupt, yeah. corrupted engram? Well, of course, the answer is it's both. Mm -hmm. And uh, a good trainer and coach will know when to uh, focus on, on one yeah. or the other or both. Yeah. So it sounds like definitely the bridge and you mentioned clamshells are great at um, reprogramming sort of that movement pattern um, for someone who would have gluteal amnesia. Are there any other specific exercises that you found in your research and experience that can be very helpful at repatterning uh, the glutes when they are inhibited? Well, for the... Uh, it depends on what part of the glute we're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, so quite often people break them up into the anatomical groups of glute med, glute max. And we never found that when we put electrodes all over the glutes and we're looking for neuromuscular compartments, independent of what you call the muscles. And we found basically two major uh, compartments. So one is the deep squat, the big 
don't look at my glute max, but the <laughs> big glute max at the bottom mm -hmm. that really is activated in the bottom half of the squat and going deep, of course. Mm -hmm. But for the top half of the squat, not so much. It's more hamstring, as you know, and, and mm -hmm. lockout, certainly. But um, for standing on one leg, that is the high glute, what someone would call glute medius. And they talk about external rotation and all of that kind of stuff. But for me to stand on one leg there, I had to turn on uh, glute med. So, of course, heavy carries uh, are, are an education for the high glute. Um, or I might just say, you know, maybe the squat tool at this point, point in our conscientious programming isn't the right tool let's go push a car or a heavy sled yep. or you know heavy farmers or or something like that but having said that you know there are some very very expert world-class athletes who really don't have gluteal muscles in their engram and, and i think of world-class cyclists mm -hmm. they have massive quadricep hamstring thigh complexes and very little glutes yeah but that's just the engram of pushing on the pedal it's a very knee-centric it's not so hip-centric as people think until they get out of the saddle and sprint or go up a hill or something like that yeah so you can get a big cyclist and to get them to become gluteal dominant, it's so counter to the engram of their sport. It's, it's very difficult to do. And I will also say um, in some men and women with very big massful thighs, and I'm thinking of bodybuilders, for example, or just people who squat heavy for the hell of it. <laughs> they, they, it's, it's, it's not really possible for them to shut their glutes off. Mm -hmm. it's just so that strength angram is so complete yeah in in their body it's very hard to corrupt them yeah. so there's another <laughs> argument for for being you know just farm boy strong it, yeah. it, it's a harder system to neurally perturb mm -hmm. that makes sense so we talked about definitely the gluteal amnesia and in doing so we mentioned the hamstrings also were a part of things that you measured originally with that emg study Going off of that, I know a lot of people will say that tight and stiff hamstrings or lack of hamstring flexibility is a cause of back pain. Can we dive into whether or not hamstring flexibility issues is a cause of back pain? Well, you know my favorite answer. It's going to be it depends. Yes. So, um, you know, you, you, of course, you'll get uh, a single patient who comes in, they can't try, tie their shoes because they just can't get there. So they try and put their socks on, straining their back. And someone would argue, well, if we gave them more hamstring flexibility, they wouldn't have back strain. Well, th there are cases of that. There's no question. But then you have to ask, what on earth caused such a stiffened body? And uh, if we could address the cause a little bit, it may or may not be in uh, stretching the hamstrings. So if we go to the next level of evidence, which um, probably the best longitudinal studies of looking at large cohorts of people, they measure their hamstring 
uh, tightness or laxity, and who gets back pain over the next couple of years. Well, probably the most powerful study, and this was done with several thousand recruits, uh, the, the military conscripts of Norway. So everyone has to do national military service in Norway. And they tested uh, hamstring length, and then they saw who got back pain. Interestingly enough, hamstring tightness in that particular situation uh, didn't really uh, influence whether or not they develop back pain. But interestingly, asymmetry between right and left hamstring was mildly associated with developing uh, uh, future uh, back pain over their, their military career. But, you know, uh, I, I, again, I, I just have to keep bopping back between the science that we've done and then our clinical life of of, of just seeing people coming in. Mm-hmm. And when we measure, because a large part of our career was was directed towards trying to create the most thorough assessment or investigation of a patient of a patient to understand why they have pain or performance inhibition or whatever it happens mm-hmm. to be. And, uh, of course, we would get many people, many athletes with tight hamstrings, and we would get the same scripts from their coaches, give them more hamstring flexibility, please. Mm-hmm. And then when we measured what was the source of their hamstring tightness, I would say most of the time, it's not tight hamstrings, it's tight nerves. So <laughs> now they've got... Uh, some irritation of perhaps a sciatic nerve root and it mimics. So when you do a leg raise test, they say, oh yeah, my hamstrings are tight. And then we're palpating the hamstring. No, they're not. You've got a tight nerve. (laughs) Let's tighten your hamstring. Now lift your head off the table. Oh yeah, you're really tightening my hamstring. No, we didn't. We tightened (laughs) your old track. Mm -hmm. So these these are all things that really pollute or disguise uh, in science, what the, the the true causes are, because you know, what we'll define tight hamstring, because you will find quite often it isn't the muscle uh, at all. But then again, you know, I, I go to the experts who really tune the speed machines. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the sprinters now, yeah. the fastest men and women, and the great coaches know the science, but they also know the art of pulling speed out of a linkage. So they know how to, they might stretch just a certain portion of the foot just to get a little bit more push off from the great toe and not so much. So they might um, add a little bit of strategic mobility forefoot, Mm -hmm. but then about the ankle joint, they want it more stiff so you can load store elastic energy and then bounce out of it with just a muscle pulse. So they're using muscle to tune the stiffness. They might use a little bit of strategic uh, mobility here and there. So those real masters of mm-hmm. tuning a body, they may choose to add a little bit of uh, uh, hamstring mobility. But I do remember, um, uh, as you, 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 I think, you know, I've, I've been through a lot of trauma in my uh, own body and, uh, you know, I've had hip replacement now. Years ago, I, I broke my hip and I had so much trouble all the time with heavy arthritis and muscles becoming tight. And, and, and I remember one time uh, stretching uh, the psoas, strategically the psoas, not the hip flexors, uh, and hamstrings. And, uh, you know, just doing rock backs and then going into the frog and playing with different heads of hamstring, really being scientific about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, all of a sudden, I felt it give. It was almost as if the muscle ripped. Well, the muscle didn't rip. My brain gave it. So my brain had been holding on to that muscle. Yeah. Uh, 
or I'm sure in your experience, you've had post-trauma patients who have a frozen shoulder mm-hmm. or a frozen joint. And if all you do is stretch it, you actually create a larger inhibition that the brain is putting on those muscles to hold that joint tight. Mm-hmm. But Or you can just be very gentle. Maybe I've got frozen shoulder, so I'll push into the pain with a PNF uh, style and then be very patient, hold that for say a 5% contraction for 10 seconds, release it. And then, Oh, my arm just went. Now, did I stretch it? No, I tricked the brain into giving it permission to go a few more degrees. Now I do it again. I'm not stretching it. Mm -hmm. I'm doing a PNF push into the pain, let it go. Oops. And then, you know, over a few weeks. So, is you know, this is so fascinating. The, these questions, I'm sure some people could just say, oh, yeah, stretch your hamstrings. Yeah. I can't. <laughs> I can't just go there. It's, it's such fabulous discussions to, uh, to have. But um, Well, I know we think a lot of times the same thing about the hip flexors. They say tight hip flexors. Maybe they do things like a Thomas test, and they see tightness there, and they automatically jump straight to stretch your hip flexors. Right. And they don't understand the complexity of it. Maybe it doesn't, maybe it's stiff for a different reason. And sometimes, I, I, you know, just some light activation can create that adaptation and that different change to create, you know, a, uh, um, a time where it feels like it actually loosens up a little bit. Well, I think let's get into the question that we definitely want to talk about, which is how to consume science. Because originally we were talking before we started recording, um, a lot of people, if you were just to Google, you know, gluteal amnesia, you may not find any scientific research out there. So let's talk about how, how should we consume science? Right. Well, I would have answered that question uh, 20 years ago. Uh, you know, I, I gave entire lectures, obviously, to grad students on, on how to read the literature and come to a conclusion and combine it with your own scientific investigations, etc. Mm-hmm. But the internet has changed this whole discussion. Um, years ago, people, I think, used to earn their expertise, and they earned it by investigating a certain phenomenon, uh, probing it with different styles of experiments. They would go to conferences and compare notes with other scientists. And when many different groups using different methodologies started to converge on a, uh, a common theme, then they became experts in this. Um, but now it seems somebody who's a, who's a marketer, I, I mean, the stuff that people show me on, on these various social media platforms of, of people's opinions, uh, it, it's, I don't know, anyway, uh, the, 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 the experts, I can assure you, are not hanging out on Facebook. The experts are doing it mm-hmm. and be, becoming masters of the craft. But anyway, having said that, uh, you know, there are these uh, certain styles of, of investigations where a person who's never had personal experience, so they don't know the nuances of what you know, we, we've been t- discussing and measuring, mm-hmm. but they go to the literature and they'll look up something. Okay, well, gluteal amnesia. Well, I can't find anything on gluteal amnesia. So they might say, well, there's no evidence that shows that gluteal amnesia is such a thing. But wait a second, if we called it neural inhibition or some other terms, or it just might have been a side part of some study, mm-hmm. then they would see there's actually quite a rich 
uh, scientific investigation history that you can put together. So that only comes by uh, time and, and really understanding, but you have to do the work yourself a little bit to yeah. become a master, to know how much, how little time, uh, you know, all of these, these uh, variables. But now let's go back to that idea. These experts, uh, maybe they're just reading the uh, abstracts, which I think a lot of them do. Well, I used to caution my students not to do that, because here's an example. Let's say uh, drug A uh, is given to nonspecific back pain. Well, what is nonspecific back pain on one person? It might be they have, you know, a discogenic disorder. As we mentioned, the next person has a, an implant fracture, a kissing spine, or, um, you know, driven by hip pain. The frozen hip is now going into the spine, whatever the reason is. So, um, Maybe mobility would help one person and be poison for the next. Maybe more strength would help one person or more control or whatever it happens to be. So that's one of the issues. But let's go back to the actual intervention and the effect. Let's say intervention A uh, uh, causes no effect in the study. And that's what's in the abstract. But that's not where the 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 gift of the scientific effort was it was in the variability and what i mean by that is mm -hmm. say 50 percent of the people actually got better 40 percent got worse and 10 percent there was no difference on average there was no effect but that's very rich because if you knew what were the features of the 50 percent who got better and what were the features of the 40 percent who got worse now you just became a master. Yes. So this is the, uh, you know, there's always responders and non-responders. And then there's the negative responders. I'll, I'll give you an example. And stop me if we've, we've uh, discussed this one before, Aaron, because it's a very squat-centric study. Do you yeah. remember the one I told you? We've done this on two different volleyball teams now. We were trying to yes. get them to squat, to jump higher, and we used a squat regimen. Mm -hmm. Both studies uncannily very similar results. About half of them added uh, a few centimeters in jump height. Mm -hmm. 30 to 40% lost jump height and 20, 10 to 20% were non-responders. It didn't make any difference. And as it turned out, there were features defining who responded to the squats and who didn't, whether they were naturally quick or naturally strong, etc. So on average, the squat training had no effect. Mm. But when you made the effort to do the science and really understand the nuances of what was going on, you then would have had enough uh, intuition to say, wait a second, let's further investigate the features of the responders and the non-responders. And that's where the gold was. Mm -hmm. So again, it takes a lot of years of working in the trenches, in the clinics, in the laboratories, and knowing your, your uh, a literature base to really come to a level where you're understanding. Uh, so, yeah. you know, the more time people spend on Facebook, it, 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 it wasn't the world I grew up in. And, and I don't think it's a better world. Uh, well, I, I definitely think, you know, like you said, not just reading the abstracts, digging into it, actually reading the full investigation and in, in understanding the context, because sometimes it'll say there's not a significant difference, but if you dive into it or there was a significant difference and you dive into it, you may find that it's, you know, a very different, uh, the data is showing something different than what they, the researchers said as their conclusion only. 
Well, we can now you've just brought up another really interesting point, significant. Is the result statistically significant mm-hmm. and it's actually biologically insignificant True. or was the result statistically insignificant, but biologically very significant. Yeah. And I was, uh, I did a podcast this morning where I was talking about uh, the relative influences of different variables in uh, in in leading to disabling back pain, and I was uh, looking at one study that had been quite quoted as showing uh, uh, psychosocial modulators were very were the most powerful in determining who reported back pain. Well, that that was a statistically significant uh, relationship, mm-hmm. but then I said, but what was the biological? Uh, significance. And as it turned out, it accounted for 3% of the variance. So it was statistically significant, but I would say 3%. Yeah. If, if, it, if it has a 3% effect, no, I want a, I want a 50 or a 90% effect. <laughs> yeah. So again, it's, th- th- there's an expertise that is required to consume science sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, y- you know, you think of how many years and how much effort it took to prove smoking caused cancer. Mm-hmm. And yet there are people today, and you can look through some of those studies, and it's a hard thing to prove from a single perspective. Um, you know, is, it, is, is there a psychological profile that those who like to smoke, uh, and, and this is all part of it, you know, tend to have a, a more a personality and a phenotype that may be, anyway, uh, it, it's... Yeah. Difficult, difficult uh, stuff to get causality, relationships, associations, uh, etc. So, yeah. uh, you, you know, and, and it's funny, too, the more militant people are on, on tw- like Twitter, it's just designed to cause controversy rather than a, a very civilized um, discussion. So yeah. anyway, we can go on about <laughs> that for, for yes. hours and hours. But uh, I'll tell you, it's it's uh, not the world I grew up in. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely food for thought. Well, I think we'll we'll call that a day just because uh, this is our third time speaking. There's a lot of great content. If anyone else is listening to this podcast, it wants to go back. Definitely listen to our first two podcasts together because there's so much great content on all things back pain, rehab, performance training, some amazing content uh, with Dr. McGill. So, uh, Stuart, thank you so much today for coming on the podcast. Uh, everyone go and check out backfitpro.com. Check out all of of Dr. McGill's uh, different seminars that he has all across the world, his books, some of the most important books that I have read and have greatly affected the way in which I approach uh, treating patients and clients throughout the day. So um, until next week, guys, happy squatting. That's it for today, class, on Squat University by Dr. Aaron Horshig. For more exclusive content, log on to squatuniversity.com.